Welcome to The Film File, built for comfort and for speed. Yes, it's The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome. I'm Lee Ford. I'm still here. Andy Meakin. <laughs> I'm glad you're still Andy Meakin, unless you regenerated. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's about time that I did. Uh, me TARDIS is looking a bit... A bit, shabby. a bit shabby. <laughs> How's your week been? Uh, you know, living, breathing, in that order. It did. Or not necessarily. Well, it, either order kind of works usually. My, my week's mostly been spent editing because how long did we talk for last week? I thought it was a short show. <laughs> it was quite impressive that I managed to get it down to that, that length of show because we <laughs> there was a point during the recording where Lee looked at how long we were gone and was like, and we're it well and truly into the second hour. <laughs> we talked for about two hours twenty-five last week, which I got. I managed to edit Did everything we? down to about what one hour thirty, one hour twenty-five. Which is about a, a good time. Therefore, there should be a director's cut. Oh man! Well, the thing is, most the Snyder cut <laughs> release release the Snyder cut release the geek cut. <laughs> Thing is, all the most of the stuff that I took out is the kind of stuff that I it's don't rubbish. think we can air. <laughs> we are known for going on many, 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 many tangents at times, and just ended up talking just general crap. You know, when we're saying it, when we're when we're actually talking about it, it never feels like general crap. <laughs> it seems like we have a point. It's just us having a laugh and talking about things, and like it's only when I listen back through it, it's like. Yeah, that didn't really make sense, did it? So, yeah, a fun edit. A really fun edit this week. Who knows what this will be? I think this is going to be a tight, short show. It's going to be tighter than Michael Keaton's Tighty Whiteys in Birdman, this show. They were tight. Yes. I want to say a big thank you this week to Harvey Morton, who was a guest on the show, I was going to say last year, but I think the it's way. The year before. That's <laughs> it. Because we live in a strange time continuum now. Uh, it could have possibly be the year before. Anyway, I want to say a big thank you to Harvey because he included us in his list of all-time favourite podcasts. So we were up there with uh, Mark Camocho. I mean, that that's that gives some prestige, doesn't it? Uh, All that and being on Audible, I think we've arrived at last. <laughs> but where have we arrived? That's the question. <laughs> yeah, where we landed, I'd have no idea. But I think we've arrived. It's Bognor Regis, that's where we've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Bognor Regis. Hello, Utah. Hello, Utah. Hope you're all doing very good over there. Before we get on to like going through the Mastodon Challenge updates uh, from this week, I just want to mention something bizarre that I've noticed this weekend, and that's the audience who are coming in for Puss in Boots. Okay. So it's opened in the UK this weekend. We'll talk about it in the box office report later. And also I've got my review of it um, later in the show. And you kind of expect a family film like this to be families. Yeah, yeah. Friday, I don't think there was anyone under the age of 18 who came to see it all day. Everyone was 18 and above. And in the evening, at one point, I was stood checking off tickets like while the team were cleaning screens, etc. And a group of goths came in. And we're talking full-on goths. We're talking like the black eyeliner, the long black trench coat, the like slick back but shaved hair at the sides but long at the back. You know, the really like... Actually, Andy, Andy, I remember when you had that yeah, look. Yeah, me, <laughs> my look. And I thought, oh, we've got a Megan show going in round about now. 
Nope. They were all, all about 14 of them, Puss in Boots. And I just had this strange image of Goth suddenly sat watching a film going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's quite funny, but life's, in, <laughs> life's not important anymore. It's bizarre. The audience are all, like, in their 18 to 24. But on reflection, kind of makes sense, because the last time there was a Shrek or Puss in Boots film was 12 years ago. Right. So if they, if they were, like, eight years old when the last Puss in Boots came out, they're 20 now. Yeah, 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 kind of makes sense. But it's 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 done it's done good business. Um, it's still doing great business worldwide. It's done great business in the UK, and it is because that older audience are flooding for it for nostalgia purposes. It's great. Wow, try and get to see it. Uh, Mastodon challenge. Every week we set a challenge on the socials. Uh, Mastodon is our social of choice, but I've noticed we are all over the place. I saw us on Facebook, and I did see us on Twitter. I'm putting I did it out there. So uh, we officially now call it the Mastodon Challenge. But it, it, uh, even though I'm putting it out on the other socials, it does show how much of an interactive community Mastodon is because we had more responses on Mastodon than any other social network. Well, hello and welcome, Mastodon. So the question that was asked this week was, if you were going to introduce someone to horror films for the first time, someone who's never seen a horror film before, what would be your go-to film or films to sit them down with? Uh, so over on our Mastodon, Mevs Mats, who replies quite frequently to the questions, that's not an easy question. Are you going to start with some classics or are you going to start slow with some, or with some softer ones? Scream got me into horror, so that would definitely be one. It, one and two, The Craft, The Purge, Better Watch Out, New Mutants, The Boy, Night Books, also suitable for beginners. Interesting to see Night, New Mutants in there, and I really kind of agree with that one because even though it's a comic booky movie, it's got the horror aspects. So, yeah. so if someone's like a fan of comic books, then the New Mutants will be a way to go, this is how comic books can tie into horror. And the things that it's drawing the horror from, I can now show you other films similar to that. I have to agree that it is hard because you need to try to work out what that person likes in the first place. Do they like comedy? Do they like cheesy horror? Do they like classic, gory? I mean, you don't want to put someone off with their first pick. Karen, geek Karen. The Shining as a horror classic. I like how it starts as an innocent family trip and devolves into something so much more sinister. Yeah. Yeah, it's got, yeah. It's got a good slow build in that one before it gets into the disturbing and terror. Uh, <laughs> potatoes. Uh, you're not going to like this one. The Babadook. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Move on quite quick. Uh, Vic Meldrew. They asked a similar, po- a similar question quite a good few posts back. Um, horror is a genre that they feel that they, sh- they like more than they do. My problem is I find so much of what I've seen unhorrific. Slasher films feel so formatted, group of friends yeah. somewhere being bumped off, and gore just looks like more projectile tomato sauce. The only films that they've, they've actually considered that have been a little unnerving are The Exorcist, Poltergeist, Friday the 13th, the original, The Ring, and Silence of the Lambs. So quite a diverse mix there of, uh, to pick from to make someone sit down and say and get to see a whole scope. Poltergeist is one which I'd go to um, yes, as a, yes, introduce someone to horror. We spoke about it on the show yeah. as to why we think it's a good entry point for like families and kids. I can see that. It's scary. It is a family-friendly horror movie. Paul added to that to say maybe also consider things like The Thing, Alien. That was my choice. Throw in some zombie classics like Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, lighten the mood a bit, and then Shaun of the Dead. They've got to admit that they also have a soft spot for The Omen, don't we all? We all have a soft spot mm. for The Omen. The original, yeah. 
And if you then want to really creep them out, don't look now. Yep, that will creep anyone out. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Glory Wolf. I'd like to check out what type of film they usually like. There's usually a horror film that mixes with this genre. Yes, absolutely. The cross-genre approach, I think, is definitely the way to go. That way, you're already tapping into something that they enjoy and making sure that there's an easy entry point. Sarah Ann suggested the paranormal activity can be nice and basic and scary, but not too scary, and there's no gore. But something like The Thing or Alien would be more of a go-to with people who might prefer something that feels more cinematic. Yeah, uh, Veronica Swain. Alien and the Shining, House on the Haunted Hill, the 1959 version. And then it depends on their tastes. I'd be tempted to show them some of my favourites, like Get Out, You Won't Be Alone, and A Tale of Two Sisters. Roland D, the approach of horror mixed with something else, or artsy horror, nice visuals and atmosphere, atmosphere, hasn't worked whenever I tried, as most uninitiated find these to be creepy and unnerving. I think it's the psychological horror that stays with you after the movie ends Mm -hmm. that is hard for newcomers. So I'd go with slasher classics. Nothing to mess with your brain. Simple fun. Visual horror. Special effects being dated so most people will not find them too scary. D. Lund D.H. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 74. If contemporary, right. I'd go There's with The Witch. Movie. I mean, wow. <laughs> Settle down for a bit of that. Um, Under the Shadow or Get Out. And Salty Red Popcorn. Uh, maybe start with a classic like Dracula or Frankenstein. And then mm-hmm. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Psycho. Night of the Living Dead. Halloween. And then maybe end with some balls out evil dead to insanity. So some absolute great answers across Mastodon there. I'll pick out a scattering from Twitter. So J- Tony Gnosis official, The Shining, Omen, Exorcist, Jaws, Alien. We start to see a few repetitions now. Uh, mm-hmm. The popular ones like Alien, Exorcist. I don't mind, I don't mind Alien uh, entering into that. I, I think, as you know, it's all there in one of my all-time favourite lists. Imran. Gave us Salem's Lot, The Omen, The Exorcist, The Shining, Poltergeist, and The Wicker Man. First mention of The Wicker Man. Quite surprised with that. Craig Wright said it would depend on the person, but Jaws or Alien could be a good jumping on point. Jaws is a good one. Yeah, I replied to that one to say, why did that not spring to mind immediately? It's a great choice. Or perhaps Zombie Plague related like 28 Days Later or World War Z. Something more relatable than a gore fest or something too supernatural. Uh, And Dom Holder... Frankenstein, 1931, The Shining, It Follows, Interview with a Vampire. Oh, I like that choice. Beetlejuice, to show that horror can be funny. And Scream from 1996. Meanwhile, to finish off, over on Facebook, we had Lee Leary said Salem's Lot. Yeah, we've got love for Salem's Lot. Yeah. We've got a lot of love for Salem's Lot. Stephen Blaine Young said It, either version. Uh, my mum didn't quite agree with the either version. She thinks the original one only. You replied over on Facebook. I did, yeah. I said the thing. John Carpenter's yep. the thing, because I think it's 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 mainly about tension, uh, and I think horror, as as everyone's pointed out, is, is with an entry point, is what kind of thing does that person like? Yeah, and uh, I think the thing works because it's a slow build. Yeah, uh, it's gratuitous, but the threat because it's it's alien is different than sort of say uh, the scare of a supernatural, which yeah. people have a tendency to have bad dreams about. And Patricia Meakin, aka Mumsy. <laughs> she started with Hammer House of Horror to watch and Pan Books of Horror to read in her youth. Old films, The Pit and the Pendulum, Dracula. But as a Stephen King fan, I think one of his films would be my choice. Cujo, Mild. Best is obviously Green Mild. Not completely horror, but maybe an introduction. To which I replied, I'm toying with Hammer Horror as my pick or Stephen King. Not sure why. It's not like I used to sit and watch them with my mumsy. Oh, hang on. <laughs> uh, so a lot of really good choices there. And out of them, I do think that one of the best shouts is Jaws. Yes, yeah. If we were giving out 
Do you remember back in the old days of Marvel Comics, you used to get a no prize? Yes. I th- if we were giving out a no prize, I think we'd have to give the no prize to Jaws. But yeah. everyone, thank you so much for taking part. Uh, and thank you for all your input. Really so good this week is a very slow news week. Nothing much has happened. <laughs> I jest, of course. Uh, we'll be talking about that in the news. So this week's a Mastodon challenge is you get to have a pitch meeting with James Gunn and pitch a DC character or film. Who would you pick? So that's that's our Mastodon challenge for this week. Uh, I know it's not just aimed at, at comic book people, um, but clearly if you're a DC fan or you're a comic book fan in particular, or you remember a, a TV show or a movie that DC have done and you'd like to see that return to the fold, what would your pitch meeting go like for James Gunn? to take notice. Answers on Mastodon, and we'll read them out next week. So that leads quite nicely into this week's show. And what have we got for you on this week's film file? We've got fun and natter and chatter. Of course, we have a deep dive into... E.T., the extraterrestrial. We've got reviews of... Puss in Boots and Knock at the Cabin that arrived at cinemas this week in the UK and arrived on streaming... Mel Gibson in On The Line. We'll be telling you our neat things, but before any of that, let's catch up on the box office and the news in the segment we lovingly call The News. So let's start with box office. Uh, Am I guessing that Avatar is still loading them in? So on its seventh weekend of release, Avatar has finally left the top spot. Yes, new releases, Knock at the Cabin, come in first in the US with 14.1 million, and 80 for Brady comes in second with 12.7 million, knocking Avatar down into third place, taking another 11.3 million this weekend. BTS yet to come, the concert, took 8 million to come in at fourth, and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, still holding into the top five, with another 7.9 million added onto its total. Here in the UK, Again, Avatar has finally been knocked off the top spot. Puss in Boots goes straight in at number one, taking 4.95 million this weekend. Avatar is in second place with another 1.2 million added onto its total. Knock at the Cabin comes in third with a 985,000 debut. Pathan drops down into fourth place this week with 701,000. And The Whale comes in straight away into the top five in fifth place with 690,000 taken at the UK box office. So, of course, the big news is James Gunn announcing his slate of new DC movies and TV series under the title of Chapter One, Gods and Monsters. Andy, what did you make of the announcement? I've, I've got some some thoughts and some issues, but let's let's talk about what we think is uh, is the announcement. Well, let's run through what the 10 projects that have been announced so far. And it's important to note that this isn't the whole 10-year plan. This is just everything up until basically the end of 2025. They're doing it in chunks and stages. One thing that Gunn said is that some characters are getting swapped out. Some are getting changed. It's a multiverse. Some of the characters, they're going to use the same actors. So there will be some returning faces from the current DC. Any project that's animated could also get a live-action version. And so the casting, even the animated voice actors with that in mind that it will be the same person voicing it and going live action which is a very interesting approach and he's also mentioned this name for video games as well hasn't he yep um everything's got to be interlinked in some way but not necessarily heavily interlinked and whilst a load of people particularly the hashtag brigade out there 
I've been convinced that James Gunn's feel won't fit every DC film. That's not a worry because James Gunn is only overseeing most of these and he's going to make sure that the creative styles and choices of the people who are picked to direct is left untouched so that the creators get to be creative. Now, the first 10 projects, we've got Creature Commandos animated series. What on earth is Creature Commandos? I hear you all asking out there. <laughs> it was a very much a left of centre choice. Um, I remember the original uh, Creature Commandos. So uh, I was quite intrigued when this landed. The comic book property sees vampires, werewolves and zombies brought into the DC universe. The show will feature Weasel from Suicide Squad as well as Rick Flagg Sr. Um, Gunn has written all seven episodes himself. So basically it's a spin-off from The Suicide Squad. You've got the Amanda Waller character playing quite prominent in this, this new DC lineup. Yes, she's got her own TV series as well. Viola Davis will reprise her role as Waller in a series that focuses on her character. It will fall in between the first and second seasons of Peacemaker, with the second season of Peacemaker being delayed as a result. Uh, Crystal Henry from Watchmen and Jeremy Carver, Doom Patrol, are writing. Now, we already kind of knew that this one was happening. Um, Superman Legacy. So this is the... uh... This is back to the movies now. This is a movie for July the 11th, 2025. Yes, they've got a slated release date. Saffron says that this will really be the start of the DCU. Everything that comes before is kind of a build-up, but this is the one that is going to properly launch it. And it's currently being penned by Gunn. It's not an origin story. It focuses on Superman balancing his Kryptonian heritage with his human upbringing. He is kindness in a world that thinks of kindness as old-fashioned. And this is the one that the Snyder bots out there are paying no attention to any of the details of because they're, they, they're constantly saying, we don't need another Superman origin story. It's like, yeah, it's not going to be an origin. They've said multiple times it's not going to be an origin. Try reading for once. I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about Superman being kind of rebooted with a different actor because I did like Cavill, but he was in yes. the wrong films. But I kind of get how they have to distance it from Cavill Superman. I'm waiting to see. I'm hoping it works. We've spoken many times about how we're both huge Superman fans on the show. I'm hoping it taps into what I believe Superman from the comic should be represented like on screen. It does kind of remind me of the Mark Wade run, uh, Superman Birthright. Yes. Clark Kent discovering how to be Clark Kent. And it was set, it was set in Africa and he went, goes and does some peacekeeping work. Um, it was a really interesting take of sort of the um, late teens, early early twenties Superman, as he as he starts to understand, which kind of got picked up on mm. a, a little bit of Man of Steel, and I thought that was one of the most interesting aspects. And if you think about the Batman, for instance, it's about how the Batman learns to become Bruce Wayne. Yeah, and and I, I quite like that idea of exploring exploring that that middle ground of how to play as Clark Kent and and what to do as being Superman. Yeah. And, and Grant Morrison kind of did did that when they relaunched the new 52. Um, if that's not super enough for you, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow movie is also in the pipeline, which is going to be based on Tom King's comic book series, introducing a very different type of character. As Gunn says, in our DCU, we see the difference between Superman who was sent to Earth and raised by loving parents from the time he was an infant versus Supergirl, who was raised on a rock chip off Krypton and watched everyone around her die and be killed in terrible ways for the first 14 years of her life. So whilst 
I'm not completely sold that if we're going to have a launch off with Superman, we need a launch with Supergirl at the same time. If they can be so different in approach to make it worthwhile, I'm there for it. I haven't read the Tom King uh, comic, which this is based on. I've, I've recently, strangely enough, just read his run on Adam Strange. And, and Tom King's got a very distinctive way, a lot of tragedy in his storytelling, a lot of diagnosis of the characters. And so I'm expecting, because he's been taken on as, as one of the writers, that uh, we're going to see a very different take on the Supergirl legend. Back onto TV and a live action TV series, Lanterns. Yes, it's been on, it's been off, it's been on, it's been off. I mean, they're constantly switching that lantern on and off, aren't they? Um, but replacing Greg Belanti, previous more space opera style series with Finn Wittrock and Jeremy Irvine. It's being dubbed a huge HBO quality TV event in the vein of True Detective. Safran says that it's a terrestrial based. It's got two of our favourite Green Lanterns, Hal Jordan and John Stewart, starring in a True Detective type mystery. And it plays a really big role leading into the main story that we're telling across all of our film and television. Glad to see that they're keeping Hal Jordan. Really pleased that they are focusing on John Stewart and Hal Jordan, who who bring diametrically different points yeah. of view uh, in the comics, and 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 that's what worked in Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams' classic run on, on Green Lantern. So yeah, I think it's I think this is I'm, I'm preferring this to the to the sort of Guardians of the Galaxy approach, which had been discussed. Yeah, so that's something to look forward to TV-wise. Um, also TV, Paradise Lost, live-action TV series. Gun on Saffron plan on building out the world of the Amazons with a TV series that will take, take place before the birth of Diana and follow the political intrigue of an all-female society. As Saffron says, it's going to be Game of Thrones-ish it's, and all about political intrigue behind society of women. What's the origin of an island of all women? What are the beautiful truths and the ugly truths behind all of that? And what's the scheming like between the different power plays in that society? So a very different approach for what you'd consider a comic booky series. Yeah, I mean, years back there was a, a, a proposed series about a young Diana and there was a, um, a sort of a paradise island version of that. But this seems this seems a lot more grown up. You probably worked out by now that I'm building up to the big, most exciting. Bit. I know, um, which so is not your your exciting news is not as exciting as my exciting news on this. Oh, I know what yours one is, and we're going to have those two last. Um, okay. So we've still got two more to do in between. We've got the authority now. I'm not up to speed on the authority. No, me but neither. this is this is the Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch comic book um, that's getting adapted, incorporating characters from DC's Wildstorm imprint into the DCU. Don't know much about the authority, so can't really talk about what I'd like from this. But as you know, I subscribe to the DC Infinite comic book reading app. So I've added the authority into my reading list to start delving into. We then got, now, whilst we've got Matt Reeves' Batman taking place in a separate universe, we're getting another Batman, the Brave and the Bold. This is the one that, that's thrown me, if I'm honest. This is the one where I've, I've kind of gone, okay, all right. Didn't see that coming. And I'm still not 100% sold on this. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we need multiple Batmen at the same time. I think it's confusing. I get that what they want to do with the Brave and the Bold is very different to what Matt Reeves' universe will allow, but it's going to cause too much confusion, particularly as a movie. If they had have done Brave and the Bold as a series, I totally think agree. it could have worked. Uh, yeah. But I'm open for it because I do like the Brave and the Bold. It's going to be based on Grant Morrison's Batman run. It's going to introduce 
DCU's Batman Bruce Wayne and the Bat family, including Damian Wayne, and Gunn dubs it a strange father-son story. It's separate from Robert Pattinson's Batman in the Matt Reeves films, which falls under the Elseworlds category. So anything like Matt Reeves as the Batman, the Joker universe, they're considered Elseworlds. As Gunn says, this is the introduction of the DCU Batman. We're also introducing our favourite Robin, Damian Wayne, who's a little son-of-a-bitch assassin murderer. Batman didn't know that Damien existed for the first eight to ten years of his life, and Gunn describes this as a very strange father-son story about the duo. Intrigued? Yes. Like the comic series? Yes. Do we need two Batman? I'm with you. Unsure. I'm totally, totally, totally with you. And I'm not sure how non-comic book fans will yeah. take to it. I think it's got potential to confuse your general public who don't understand, who don't read comics. I think it's a very bold and brave move. See what he did there. Uh-huh. But I, I'm I'm with you on this one, Andy. I was uh, I've got I've got a lot of trepidation on this one. So let's get to the one that I've been I've been excited for, and the one that I called. Let's be honest, I called you did, this. You did. You should get a no prize. And I even called that it was going to be a TV series because it would work better as a TV series, and that is Booster Gold. Booster Yay. Gold is getting a TV series. Um, Saffron said about this, it's about a loser from the future who uses uses basic future technology to come back to today and pretend to be a superhero. And that's what I love. We know it's been a popular fan choice. When Gunn took over, I instantly said, Booster Gold, Booster Gold, please, Booster Gold, TV series, not a film. I don't want a film. I want a TV series because I want you to have fun with this. This is top of my list and I cannot wait. Uh, All I've got to see now is the casting. I would love Nathan Fillion to play Booster Gold. Um, <laughs> in in an ideal world, ideal casting, Ryan Reynolds. I think, yeah, I think he's got the right kind of charm. Please not Chris Pratt. Please not Chris Pratt. I've had enough of Chris Pratt now. He's everywhere. He's voicing every character in every animated film. No Chris Pratt. Uh, interestingly enough, Gunn has said that he wants to bring some of his Guardians of the Galaxy actors over yeah. to his uh, his DC universe. So. I think it's a possibility. Oh, maybe he's thinking about what your favourite one is and casting uh, Dave Batista under the heavy makeup of Swamp Thing. Now, this made me made me happy. Uh, and a big screen version. Actually, did you remember the DC Universe TV series from a few years ago? Yeah, um, cancelled after one season. Cancelled because the production budget was too high. Yeah, wasn't bad at all. No, it's, uh, it was really good, re- well placed. Um, yeah. Is this just going to pick up from where that left off or is it just going to start again? We don't know at this I point in time. doubt it. I would doubt that it would just pick up from there because it had a whole... Uh, it, it's, it played down the supernatural elements of, of Swamp Thing. And then this made me very happy is the proposed choice of director who apparently has been a fan of this particular book for years. Uh, he cited that discussions are on and that's having James Mangold direct a Swamp Thing movie. Yeah, particularly like as soon as the news broke of the announcements, Mangold made it very clear on social media how much of a huge fan he is by posting panels from the Swamp Thing comic book saying, this is what it should be. I'm excited for this. Interested to see that they're going to be going the horror movie approach. And this will be the film that closes out this chapter one of Gods and Monsters. Gods and Monsters, obviously referring to this, unlike Marvel, they're not going to slowly introduce characters. This isn't a world that has never had superheroes and then all of a sudden starts to get them. This is going to be a world that already has established gods, established heroes. So there's no need for that slow build up. The 
not copying Marvel this time around. They're not attempting to copy Marvel. They want to make themselves stand out and want them to be more DC because DC in the comics, it was always just accepted that superheroes were always yeah. there. So Gods and Monsters, first chapter, runs for the next few years. It's a very exciting time for DC. Let's see how it all plays out, shall we? Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, So what is interesting out of all of this is this idea that the Flash movie is almost going to be the reset button. Yeah, uh, Gunn has gone on to stress that, well, there's been a lot of people online saying, what's the point of all the films coming out this year from DC if they're just going to reboot it? It's pointless watching them. But he's stressed that all of them are quite key. Some of the characters will be carrying over to the future of the DCU at some point. But he said that Shazam, Fury of the Gods, leads directly into the Flash, which acts as a reset button um, for the DC universe, sacrificing some things, bringing some other things into the fold. Blue Beetle has no direct links to the old DCEU, so it settles nicely as a starting point for this DCU. And even Aquaman is perfectly fit for the new continuity. So there's nothing within these films coming up that is like, well, this pointless getting into this because this is now gone. All of them could play a role in the future of the DCU. He's not, from what I've read, using the idea of getting rid of Aquaman. And also, he might not even be considering getting rid of, of Wonder Woman Yeah, uh, as the way that they're being portrayed now. He seems to be saying, I'm leaving the door open to sequels Yeah, uh, for those movies as well without her doing any recasting. And I don't think it needs it. I mean, you know, she's not a great actress in everything else she does, but as Wonder Woman, Gal Gadot is amazing. Yeah. And I'd love to see her come back for more Wonder Woman films. And I really do like Momoa. I love his charisma, and I love his uh, role in Aquaman. And it was the biggest box office um, take on, on all the DC movies. After years of people joking that Aquaman's a duff character, and it ends up being the one that passes the billion when Batman and Superman don't. I mean, yeah. that that shows like the draw power of something a bit more fun. Yeah. Gonna stress that writing comes first. People have become beholden to release dates, so getting movies made no matter what. I'm a writer at my heart, and we're not going to be making movies before the screenplay is finished. I've seen it happen again and again. It's a mess. The primary reason for the deterioration in quality of films today versus 20 to 30 years ago. There's a degradation of the writer in Hollywood. It's been a terrible story. It's gotten much worse since I first moved here. And he's pointed out that there's so many films nowadays, big blockbusters, that actually go into shooting before they've got the final act written and they're mm -hmm. writing it on set, which is why we end up with the generic finale of a CGI battle against a CGI monster, yada, yada, yada. He doesn't want that. He wants to make sure the scripts are nailed right up until the end so that there's no break in the flow and you're not just watching a generic churned out quick rush ending because production date is coming to a close so what he has announced is a kind of a writer's room yes so what we do know is we've said that tom king uh the comic book writer tom king is part of that which is an interesting crossover so that makes me feel that he'll be involved with the supergirl movie uh, Cabin in the Woods, Drew Goddard, who's no stranger to superheroes because he uh, he created the Daredevil TV series for Netflix, uh, was a big writer on Buffy, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, he directed Bad Times at the El Royale. Great writer. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, Christina Hodson, who gave us Birds of Prey. Yep. She seems to fit quite well into uh, the DC universe. She was part of the cancelled uh, Batgirl movie. Yep. Jeremy Carver, who'd worked on uh, another DC series, the highly popular Doom Patrol. From the Watchmen TV series, Crystal Henry. And Jeremy Slater, who uh, created the Moon Knight TV series, created the very excellent uh, The Exorcist TV series. Uh, no stranger to superheroes because he also did the original draft and you can't hold this against him for the awful Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> but the original script was very good indeed. So, um, yeah, interesting. He's got a, he's got a writer's room, which it seems to be um, it seems to be a very collaborative effort rather than giving it to one guy to write and produce and direct. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, they seem to have a, a vision amongst a group of people to hopefully turn the DC universe around and make them the successful films on the screen, story-wise and box office-wise, that they deserve to be. Yeah, the only thing I can point out is that Warner's paid an awful lot of money to J.J. Abrahams to to produce an awful lot of work. He was going to do Justice League yeah. Dark. He had his uh, uh, different take on Superman, and all those now, I'm assuming, are gone. There was an awful lot of money spent spent to get him on HBO Max, but... I'm guessing all that's now brushed under the carpet. Okay, what else have we got news? It's not all about DC. We've spoken about it before, but the upcoming action thriller, The Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, already had an impressive list of names attached to it. Yeah, we mentioned Henry Cavill, didn't we? Yeah. Guy Ritchie directing Henry Cavill and Ambulance star Eliza Gonzalez in the lead roles. The full cast list has now been announced, and it's stacked. It's absolutely stacked. Henry Golding... Operation Fortune co-star Carrie Elwes. Reacher leading man Alan Richardson. Do have a lot of time for him. Uh, and that's not all, because more have hopped on board. Magic Mike's Alex Pettifer. The New Mutants Brazilian actor Henry Zaga. After and Fear of the Walking Dead franchise actor Hero Fans Tiffin. Veteran German actor Till Schweiger. And Star Trek Strange New Worlds Dr. Babs Olison Mokum. Um, this is based on a true st- true story, which we covered last time. UK Prime Minister Winston Churchill's and James Bond author's secret World War II combat organisation. But obviously it's going to be given a Guy Ritchie kind of slant and approach. And I, I can see some Man From U.N.C.L.E. vibes within this. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully some Man From U.N.C.L.E., some Sherlock Holmes vibe to it, as opposed to uh, King Arthur, let's say. Shooting is starting this coming week in Turkey. So this should be turning up at cinemas or on Amazon, depending on who decides to snap it up later this year or early next year. I thought this was a fun story to tie in with the release of Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. Ant-Man's memoir, Look Out for the Little Guy, is going to be available for real. So they're really going to go out to do something absolutely different uh, as a part of merchandising. So the book that's going to be in the movie uh, is going to be released for real. There are stories of epic battles won and lost as this everyman-turned-superhero finally tells all. From the official count of what really happened between the Avengers and Thanos to how shrinking down to ant size really feels to the challenges of balancing the roles of hero and dad across his many adventures, big and small. Scott has gathered the wisdom of countless amazing experience into this, the first memoir from a real-life Avenger. You can pre-order it now. I'm in. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I'll be picking that one up as well. I want the Audible version. Yeah, read by Scott Lang. Not by yeah. Paul Rudd, read by Scott Lang. 
<laughs> I want to believe he's real. Michael B. Jordan is making his directing debut in the upcoming third Creed film that we already know, only a, a month away. But yeah. this isn't. This won't be the end of Adonis Creed's story. Uh, the new film will see him face off against a recently released from prison childhood friend named Damian Anderson, played by Jonathan Majors, the great Jonathan Majors, uh, with Tessa Thompson, Wood Harris, Florian Monto, and Felicia Rashad reprising their roles from their early entries. Whilst this is the first film in the Rocky franchise without Sylvester Stallone's involvement at all, uh, there's a jump of five years from the last one. Adonis is now the key character. But speaking with IGN, Michael B. Jordan has said that he's got other plans beyond another sequel, namely spin-offs. There's going to be a spin-off to the spin-offs. He just wants to expand the Creed verse within reason, but definitely expect other things around Creed's to be sure. I saw the trailer, funny enough, just before we started recording, and Jonathan Majors, man, he's bulked up. He's a beast. He's a he's beefcake. Huge. Oh. He's so, so beefy. He's, he's a double quarter pounder beefcake. <laughs> he's huge. I, I, I'm guessing that, that kind of beef up is going to be taken into the role of Kang as well. Yeah. You weren't a big fan of Bad Boys 3, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I think that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're, you're not going to be interested in the news that Bad Boys 4 is happening with the directors of Adil and Bilal. Um, Adil and Bilal, we know, brought us Miss Marvel, and they also brought us the ill-fated Batgirl film. But they seem to be back in familiar territory now with Bad Boys 4. They're not a fan. I mean, Bad Boys 1 was great. Bad Boys 2 was just Bad Boys 1, but overblown. And Bad Boys 3 was awful. So I'm out. You and I were huge fans of She-Hulk. And we were huge fans of Tatiana Maslany in particular, because she is phenomenal. She's teaming up with Jasmine Savoy-Brown for the cast of Josh Rubin's sci-fi thriller, Green Bank. Don't know much about it at this time, Whatever she's in, she's just absolutely awesome. And I would love to see a second season of She-Hulk. Yes, please, Marvel. We want it. We want it. We're happy with it. Ignore all those haters out there. They don't make up a huge amount of numbers. Tom Hardy and Joker actress Zazie Beetz teaming up for the Nordic Noir Apple TV Plus series, Lazarus, based on the Juno Lina book series by author Lars Kepler. That sounds interesting. You're not a big fan of him, but I, I, I quite like the idea of that. Lazarus follows Police Detective Sergeant Bauer, played by Beats, as she goes undercover in a maximum security psych ward to discover the secrets of the serial killer, Jurek Walter, who's going to be played by Hardy. The Lars Kepler author is actually a pseudonym for a couple of other writers so that they they work together and sell them under that name. And the book series has sold more than 17 million copies worldwide. Norwegian TV director Oysten Carlson is going to write, direct and executive produce whilst Hardy beats Dean Baker, David Reichstel, and Nicholas Salmonson will executive produce. Um, it's close to development stage. It's done with Apple TV in mind. You know what? I'm in. Jurassic World director Colin Trevow and House of Dragons writer Charmaine de Grey, and I know you're a big fan of the Jurassic World series, Andy. Uh, they're teaming up for a new movie with the title Atlantis. Cool, that can sink. <laughs> <laughs> See what we did there. Moving on. Ridley Scott's Gladiator sequel has set its release date of November the 22nd, 2024. Filming is reportedly targeting a start this March. Paul Meskel is set to lead the film as Lucius, the son of Lucilla from the first film, and the nephew of Joaquin Phoenix's character, Commodus. Meskel beat out people like Austin Butler, Timothy Chalamet, Miles Teller, and former Game of Thrones actor Richard Madden, who all auditioned to the role. 
The story will begin with Lucius, now a grown man, and when Maximus sacrificed himself to save him and his mother, it left a strong impression on the young Lucius. Crow has already confirmed he's not involved in the film in any way. First draft of the film was ready by last November. Ridley Scott is returning once again to direct, so we've got a year and a half to wait before we get to see whether or not it's worth going back to that gladiator setting. Yeah, I, d- I don't know how I feel about it, based on Ridley Scott returning to some of his other franchises, as just not having the scope that he brought to those original films. But yeah. we'll wait and see. I, I, I'm not a doomsayer, as you know. So that's pretty much the news for this week. But uh, sadly, we've got to report the passing of, well, an, an actress who uh, has, was in two of my iconic films. Uh, and that's the sad passing of uh, Melinda Dillon. Yep, Arkansas-born, Oscar-nominated actress Melinda Dillon passed away at the age of 83 on January the 9th. The announcement was only released this week. Uh, She received a supporting Oscar nominations for her work as a single mother with alien abducted son in Close Encounters of the Third Kind and also as a suicidal Catholic woman in Sidney Pollock's Absence of Malice. And she had an interesting and diverse career. Uh, She was in the Bigfoot family film, Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, She was in Slapshot, played two characters in Hal Ashby's Bound for Glory. But she was also the mother, and this is one of your beloved films that you keep telling me to watch. She played the sweet mother of Ralphie in the holiday favourite, A Christmas Story. She was an iconic 70s actress. Of course, she worked right up through her career. Uh, She was nominated uh, for a Broadway debut in the original production of Who's Afraid of a Virginia Woolf. It's always sad when we get to talk about people who've passed, whose who's work that we've admired. And um, as I said, she appeared in two of my favourite films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and A Christmas Story. So our, our condolences go out to all her friends and family and everyone out there who's ever enjoyed her work. And that's the news for this week. Hey, Andy, do you think they're enjoying the show? I hope they are. Well, do you think they should subscribe? And leave a like. I'm very surprised that they haven't done yet. I mean, I'm looking at you out there. I can see what you've done. You just listen to this and not bother to like and subscribe us. Well, let's change all that and give you the chance to subscribe and like the show by heading over to your favourite podcast platform and checking out the film file. Hit that subscription button and remember to leave a review. But you can find us on all sorts of socials. Yes, you can find us all over social media. Just search for Film File UK. We're generally on there. More prominent on some than the others, but I, we do we do check in every now and then. Or you can get in touch with us directly via email. If you've got any thoughts, suggestions, recommendations that you want us to watch, anything you want us to deep dive, we do eventually get round to them. Just send us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely love to hear from you. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. I think this week's deep dive, we can actually, actually stress that it is a classic and a much loved classic. We are talking about the 1982 American science fiction family film produced and directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, E.T., the extraterrestrial, or simply put, just good old E.T.,
keeping him. You can't tell. Not even Mom. What's happening? I don't know. Something scary. You look great! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. E.T. phone home! It's too bumpy. We'll have to walk from here! <laughs> you gotta find it. E.T., stay with me. This beautiful little film tells the story of Elliot, a young boy who befriends an extraterrestrial who he dubs E.T., who has become stranded on Earth. Along with his friends and family, Elliot must find a way to get E.T. to find his way home. The film stars Dee Wallace, Peter Coyote, Robert McNaughton, a very, very cute and young Drew Barrymore, and Henry Thomas in what is an outstanding performance. E.T. is not just a film that you like, it is a film that you you simply adore. And for those of us who saw it the first time round, it has so much meaning. Um, Andy, I'm, I'm assuming that we're going to echo each other exactly on this one. I think this is one that we're going to have a lot of agreement with. I was nine when this film came out. Perfect age. Which See means you. that I was the age group of which Elliot and his friends were. So this was that magical, perfect snapshot of childhood that kind of like impacted on me. And with this film, it's not just about the film itself. There's the memories of this film also tap into memories of, you know, trips out with my mum because she used to take us to the cinema, but also memories of my uncle because he, he, my first experience of a picture disc was my uncle had the soundtrack album for E.T. on picture disc. Right. And used to love playing it when we were around there. So this is one of those films that, you know, it's trapped within the, my nostalgic reflections on my own youth and childhood. But thankfully, it's also a film that deserves to be revisited. It deserves to be looked back at. It deserves to be remembered because it's such a beautiful, enchanting adventure. And it's a very simple one as well. I was going to say exactly that, Andy. I was going to say what a simple story it is. It's... Yeah. I, I think for everything that Spielberg has done, including the Fablemans, this is his most personal. Elliot as a kid is estranged from his father who's who's left the family. Um, it's a kid who's on the outside of things. He's an imaginative child. Uh, this this is a, a, a really honest film. And that's what shines through. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's those elements. And, and often copied, but no one's captured that that beauty and that simplicity of it. At its core, this simple tale about two lost souls coming together and helping each other out. You know, Elliot helping E.T. get back home while E.T. helps Elliot fill the void that was left after his father and mother had separated. Up until The Fablemans, this was the film that drew most from Spielberg's early life. 
Uh, Spielberg himself created an imaginary friend when his parents divorced, and that's where he got the inspiration for E.T. And at the start of the film, there's even that slight suggestion that maybe it is just his imagination. After all, the name E.T., Elliot's name is Elliot Taylor, E.T. Maybe he was just a reflection of his own self, but then it becomes something a bit more enchanting and magical and believable. And that's the key thing. It's believable. I believe in E.T. Yes, and, and that's part of part of the joy of it. And it's almost it's almost a Tinkerbell in Peter Pan, isn't it? It's where you clap yeah. your hands to bring Tink back and, and bringing E.T. back is, is through the love that, that people found for the for this unlikely character that people fell in love with. This film was a was an instant classic. It premiered as the closing film of the Cannes Film Festival in 1982, released in the US in June 1982, and was an immediate blockbuster. It was everywhere. It was the same way that Star Wars touched into the, into the zeitgeist of, of entertainment. And it suppressed Star Wars to become the highest grossing film of all time, a record held until 11 years later when Spielberg's own Jurassic Park suppressed it. It was acclaimed by critics. It was loved by everyone. I don't remember anyone saying that they didn't enjoy E.T. I think it touches on so many different levels. And, and as I said, there's an honesty to this. And, and yeah. it's that childlike wonder. This cemented more than any other of Spielberg's films to that point, that he was the greatest filmmaker of that particular time. And still is, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You say about the childlike wonder which is smartly conveyed by the camera work, which for a majority of the film, it's at child's eye level. It's a child's eye's view of the world. The adults don't get much screen presence, with the exception of Dee Wallace, um, who's excellent as Elliot's mother, Mary. But Peter Coyote gets screen time. But for the majority of it, we only see round his belt line and the keys, and his his character is referred to just simply as keys. It's such a well-presented and well-told film. But as I've said with other Spielberg films, the one huge character that means so much within this film is the score. And the John Williams score for this is... uh, It's my personal favourite of all the John Williams scores. It conveys so many layers of emotion, the sweeping orchestral movements that it's packed with evoke every emotion throughout and i cannot help but whenever i listen to the score for this particularly that one that links in with that famous image of the bike suddenly taking off the i feel myself welling up it's such a beautiful score and it's that it's the pinnacle of what john williams has ever delivered as far as i'm concerned and and out of the amount of scores which are iconic uh, that's actually saying quite a lot so a little bit about the background. So as Andy said, uh, Spielberg's parents divorced in the 1960s. To fill that void, Spielberg created an imaginary friend, an imaginary alien companion who he recalled in later life as a friend who could be a brother, yeah. uh, the brother he never had, and a father he didn't feel he had anymore. He announced in 1978 that he would shoot a film entitled Growing Up, which he would film in four weeks. However, the project was set aside due to the delays on 1941. But the, the concept about making a small autobiographical film about his own childhood would stay with him. He thought about doing a sequel to the hugely successful Close Encounters of the Third Kind and began to develop, and this has kind of entered into sort of legend, a darker alien story that he planned to, to develop with the writer John Sayles. 
that was called Night Skies, in which malevolent aliens terrorize a family. And in fact, if you watch Gremlins Mm -hmm. at the cinema, the local uh, cinema, there is the billboard for Night Skies. Once Spielberg was shooting Raiders in Tunisia, he had this sense of loneliness uh, from his friends and family and the memories of his childhood creation resurface. He discussed this with Melissa Matheson about Night Skies and developed a subplot from a failed project in which Buddy, the only friendly alien, befriends an autistic child. And that abandonment of an alien worked its way into the script for E.T., which Matheson wrote a first draft called E.T. and Me in eight weeks, which Spielberg considered to be perfect. And the draft, amazingly, only went through two more drafts. And it's a perfect script. And I don't think Mm. Melissa Matheson gets enough kudos for this script. Yes, she worked in it from a story by Spielberg. But, you know, to to create a a, a script in that amount of, of time that is as perfect as it is, uh, is, is a considerable feat in, in this day and age of, of Hollywood. There's the age-old adage, never work with children or animals. But in this film, Spielberg worked with children. And also there's the dog there as well. Yeah. And he delivers fantastically. And he gets some great performances. Young Henry Thomas has a fun spirit to him. Yes. The school class moment shows like a bit of comic edging that he can do. And the latter half of the film, he sells every emotional punch. And by the time he gets to deliver that one word of stay during the closing scene, anyone who's not blubbing like an absolute baby at that point is dead inside, (laughs) absolutely dead inside. Rob McNaughton was great as the nerdy, wannabe, cool older brother, Michael. But Drew Barrymore, absolutely stellar performance for such a young age. Her delivery of the biting comeback, such as her marvellous turn when when they're trying to just tell her what E.T. is and she just turns around and looks at the camera and goes, give me a break, is an early sign of the strong performer that she took far too many latter years to get to again. We know that she, after this film, her career didn't quite go according to plan and her life went a bit off the rails. But in her later years, she's gone back to the strength that this early promise showed. There was the very famous behind-the-scenes footage of, of Spielberg working with Drew Barrymore. And it's just just absolutely charming how he got that uh, amazing, amazing performance from her. To such a great young star. Everyone's really good in this. And it just works so well because the simple story just paces along at just under two hours without any unnecessary flack. It's just a simple, continuous narrative that goes through and it just charms, it enraptures, it enchants, it upsets, it hits you in every emotional section because it's to focus on childlike imagination. And it taps into that childlike innocence that all of us still have locked away somewhere within the back of our memories. It perfectly encapsulates everything about childhood that we want to draw back to. Now, it was going to get a sequel. Yes. Back in 1982, Spielberg and Matheson were drafting out a treatment called Nocturnal Fears, which would have seen Elliot and his friends kidnapped by an evil alien race. And they call out to E.T.'s race to come and help. Thankfully, this was scrapped because I've never heard of a a dumber kind of continuation than this. And it was Spielberg who decided that that kind of story would add nothing and it would rob the original of the purity and the innocence. However, 20 years later, Spielberg went on to 
deliver a special edition of E.T. Which didn't work out quite as well as his special edition or his director's cut of Close Encounters. Yeah, the special edition of E.T. added in a few trimmed scenes. It tinkered with some of the effects work to polish some of it up. And then most famously, all the guns in the film were replaced with walkie-talkies resulting in some really ridiculous-looking moments when government agents are stood holding walkie-talkies in the air in an almost threatening kind of manner. Now, unlike his good buddy Lucas, Spielberg makes it very clear which version of the film he prefers and he thinks people should watch. In his words, when people ask me which E.T. they should look at, I always tell them to look at the original 1982 E.T. If you notice, when we put out E.T., we put two E.T.'s. We put the digitally enhanced version with the additional scenes. And for no extra money in the same package, we gave you the original 82 version. I always tell people to go back to the 82 version. He kind of acknowledges that it was just, it was an experiment. It was an experiment to see what you could do with the technology. Could you clean up some scenes? Could you replace things? But he acknowledges that the purest element of this film is that original one. And E.T.'s got such an iconic design. The huge eyes, the extended neck. Uh, the fact that he's um, uh, he's not the best looking character ever created, and, and not much of a stunner, not a ladies no. man. <laughs> but that kind of helped the fact that ET was was so different looking. But the clever bit of the design, which was Carlo Rimbaldi, uh, was an extraordinary extraordinary puppet. Uh, was the fact of the eyes and the, the connection that that we all make make to eyes, and you know. If you're if you're a parent, that that babies make that connection through the eyes. So it was it was a, it was a beautiful and of course a legendary legendary design. There's loads of we all know the stories from on set of how M and M's balked at the idea of their sweets being used, resulting in Reese's Pieces becoming a huge sensation across the US. And we also know about how the tie-in video game ended up filling a land <laughs> landfill because it failed to shift units, which is actually true as a documentary a few years ago. Yeah, I was about to say, there's a doc in there. But there was also allegations around the time of the release of plagiarism levied on the film. Indian yes. director Satyajit Ray drew comparisons with a 1967 unfilmed script called The Alien that he had. And he was alerted to these similarities by Arthur C. Clarke, who urged him to take legal action against Spielberg. But Ray chose not to. And his reason for not doing it he didn't want to appear vindictive against Spielberg, a director who he had a great amount of respect for. And you've got to respect that because looking at reports on the similarities between these stories, there was enough in there to maybe say there's some elements that have been carried across. But for a director to say, I don't want to take legal action because Spielberg's such a great guy, man, respect. I know of this legend. Uh, there was also a, 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 another uh, plagiarism uh, that, yes. was, that was thrown out quite early on. Was this the, the one-act musical stage thing? Yeah. Yeah, which was basically laughed out of court. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, there was a, a musical one-act play called Loki from Maldemar, and the playwright Lisa Litchfield claimed it was the basis for E.T. She lost the case without, with the court stating no reasonable jury could conclude that Loki and E.T., were substantially similar in their ideas and expressions, and any similarities in the plot only exist on a general level. Uh, and I think the reason that it, it was open to these sort of uh, uh, allegations is, is simply the fact that 
it's such a simple story and yeah we always start with the very simplest of, of stories like i said it's the simple story that taps into that childhood nostalgia that we've all got and so a lot of people who've written scripts will recognize things that they've tapped into that are so similar to it simply because it's about childhood innocence and about discovery you can't get more universal than that. Absolutely. And, and the film has a legacy. It's interesting that it's not aged badly at all. To say this is a film yeah. from the early 80s, and other than technology, uh, the technology of mobile phones or the technology of, of home computers, it still feels real. It still has those moments. It still connects. And it made me cry. I watched it again. It made me cry and we watched it as a family and we, we all got into it exactly the same. It touched each and every one of us. Exactly the same, eh? Watching it this week, big tears welling up in my eyes. Always reduces me to a blubbery mess. Yeah. I love this film. Absolutely love it. Andy, if you want to watch E.T., and if it's the first time that you've ever seen it based on this recommendation, just go with it. Don't go in with a cynical heart. Go with it and let let it affect you. Let it, let it talk to you in, in the way that it was intended. Uh, where, where can we find it, Andy? It's not available for free on any service at the moment, but you can rent it quite cheap. But seriously, just buy it. It's now got a nicely polished 4K Ultra HD edition, which is thoroughly, thoroughly recommended to pick up. If not, you can pick up the DVD quite cheap and you can pick up the Blu-ray quite cheap. But I would point you in the direction of the 4K Ultra HD and do this film the justice that it deserves. Fantastic. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. So now it's time for this week's reviews. And Andy has seen something for everyone. Starting with a film that um, I don't know whether to see. I was really interested in this. I know a friend of mine has read the book and says it's awesome. And that's the new film from M. Night Shyamalan. Knock at the cabin. It's coming. The apocalypse. family must sacrifice one of the three of you or the world will end this is delusional i'm on my family side make a choice we're not sacrificing anyone make a choice when a vacationing couple and their daughter are taken hostage by four armed strangers, all is not as it initially seems, as the four demand one of the family must be sacrificed by the others in order to prevent the impending apocalypse. With no connection to the outside world from their isolated cabin, the family must decide what they believe and whether the strangers are really who they claim to be before time runs out and the end of days arrives. Adapted from the novel The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul G. Tremblay, this tale has been put through the Shyamalan filter, resulting in a curious film that hits more than it misses but still suffers from the things that far too many of the director's offerings suffer from. On the positive side, the concept is great, and the approach, at least in the early acts, is presented with enough ambiguity to keep you wondering what the actual reality of the situation is. This is aided by a solid cast of characters, inhabited by some strong players. The couple, Eric and Andrew, are played by Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge convincingly. The confusion, the terror and concern they experience feels so natural and real. The young Kristen Sway, as their daughter Wen, gives a strong performance for a young performer, as do the remaining of the cast of Abby Quinn, Nikki Amuka Bird and Rupert Grint. Rupert Grint gives a marvellous performance, but it's Dave Batista who really shines through here in a role so very far removed from his usual ones. 
As Leonard, the somewhat leader of the four strangers, he's quiet, reserved and subdued, with a heavy presence of determined desperation bubbling under the surface. But sadly, for every element that works in the film, the score keeps the tense environment, the camera work serves to unnerve and play with the audience in that manner that Shyamalan is known to do. The failing of the whole thing is the director's insistence on over-explaining things. Something that has plagued most of his recent offerings. There is little room for ambiguity in the film, as Shyamalan heavy-handedly insists on covering every element far too much. And in here, it actually starts to take away from the impact of some scenes as a result. I find that in general, I respect what Shyamalan does far more than I enjoy what he does. And each of his films still intrigues me and draws me in, leaving me somewhat sated by the end, even though I grow frustrated at how he never seems to let them be what they could easily be. It's interesting to see Dave Bautista's uh, career mm. and, and how he's opened up. And he's almost, he's kind of doing the anti-rock, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He's making really challenging choices on the roles that he wants to play. From, you know, being being a uh, the psychic villain in a Bond movie to the character he played in Glass Onion. Yeah. He, he's, he's now an actor to watch. Yeah. He's probably the best actor to have come from WWE stable. I mean, The Rock gets by on being The Rock. The Rock gets by on charisma. Yeah, uh, and, but he did something interesting with Southland Tales, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and could have gone, if that film would have been a, a success, he, he's, his career could have gone in a, in a different direction entirely. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. I'm always interested by Shemalian's films. Uh, I've never missed one, so I, I've got to see it. But, but old, for me, kind of w- was an interesting failure. For the for the yeah. reasons that you mentioned, that he over-explains everything, and if he if he just left out the the idea of the the health farm, yeah, and just made it a, an odd beach story, I think I'd have been more impressed. It was it was trying to explain the mystery, and and it didn't need explaining. Yeah. So another film you've seen that I'm looking forward to: animated adventure from the foundation of the Shrek universe, and that's Puss in Boots: The Last Wish. Your Puss in Boots? No, I'm no English. I don't speak Spanish either. Normally, I have a sword. Okay. Who is this guy? I'm Puss's best friend. No, he isn't. And his therapy dog. Want to rub my belly? Finally, you need therapy. Puss in boots. All you have to do is stop and smell the roses. This is stupid. All I smell is bullshit. The last time we saw Puss in Boots on the big screen was way back in 2011, in a rather average yet sporadically enjoyable outing that was spun off from the Shrek franchise. When this new film was first rumoured, it didn't make much of an impact on me at all. However, once the trailers started landing, something grabbed my attention, and thankfully, the end result turns out to be not only as much fun as those trailers suggested, but perhaps the best of the Shrek first films after Shrek 2 which everyone surely knows is the best of the franchise, yeah? Puss, through his life of adventure and thievery, has a price on his head. However, laughing in the face of danger has resulted in him now on the last of his nine lives. Any hint of peril could be his last, and with a mysterious bounty hunter wolf after him, he goes into hiding to spend his last years as a simple cat. However, when Kitty Softpaws crashes back into his life with a quest to find the mythical last wish, it gives Puss a chance to get his lives back. But with the wolf and Goldilocks and the three bears on their tails, the pair, alongside a stray dog named Perito, face danger and magical enchantments on their quest. Voice cast are great. Banderas and Hayek fall easily back into their roles as Puss and Kitty. Florence Pugh, Olivia Coleman, Ray Winston and Samson Kayo add so much life to Goldilocks and the bears, 
helping lift them from simple support threat to a gang of characters you actually begin to care for just as much as our heroes. We also get Harvey Gulen, John Mulaney and Wagner Mora offering their voices to flesh out the support, breathing life into their characters as well. With a great cast and a fun, pacey, witty and adventurous script that deftly throws fairy tale references around, the film is given even more life through the excellent visual flair. The animation at times looks like oil-brushed painting, capturing the fairy tale imagery of the world setting to perfection. The action moments have a low frame rate effect to them, making them look dynamic yet very comic book page-like at the same time, much in the same way that the Spider-Verse films creatively play with the visual flair. The wondrous mythical lands the adventure passes through all have a unique vibrancy and character that far outstrips any expectations that the earlier Shrek and Puss films would have suggested. This is a solid return of the franchise, and it offers great fun for young and old. By the closing moments, I was more hopeful for the rumoured return of the Shrek franchise itself to the screen, having been so glorious reminded of why DreamWorks' previous offerings were so warmly embraced. I love the first Puss in Boots movie. I thought it was I thought it was great. I thought it was charming. I thought it was very witty. It did that thing that DreamWorks does very well, which it, it appeals to kids and appeals slyly to adults. And I, I hope I get to see it. I'd like to see it on the big screen. If time allows, then yes, I am in. And my final film this week, London on Amazon this week, starring Mel Gibson, On the Line. Gary, are you with us? I'm going to do something really screwed up tonight. You at home? No. Does the home belong to someone you know? No. It belongs to somebody not very nice. And I'm take out his whole family. Gary, what was that? I'm breaking into the house. Hey, 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 Gary, stop, wait, come on. Why hurt his family? I mean, they're innocent. You're better than that, Gary. Tell me calmly. Where exactly are you? I'm at your house. Honey. Mel Gibson plays Elvis Cooney, a late night shock jock DJ who hosts the Midnight Talk Show. However, one particular night takes a very dark turn when a caller claims to be at Elvis's house and is taking his family hostage in order to destroy Elvis's life as retribution for the death of his previous switchboard operator, Lauren, who the caller blames Elvis for the death of. Thus begins a tense hour or so of live radio as Elvis tries to prevent the tragedy from playing out. Or at least that's how it should play out. But sadly, any and all potential within this done-to-death concept is wasted due to a completely flat atmosphere, which not even Gibson, who it must be noted is actually not too bad in this, can save. As the dangerous game of cat and mouse plays out, not even an attempt in the final act to put a new spin on the events works, as each and every twist throughout makes the whole thing more and more implausible. Sloppily written, the film more than outstays its welcome pretty early on. And what may have seemed like a sharp idea for a short story is stretched far too much in credulity and credibility, making for a tiresome 104 minutes for even the most forgiving of audience. Okay, so that's the reviews. Uh, I'm not interested in that one, Andy. Thank you very much for warning me. What else is due this week? Cinemas will see. Yeah, I won't see. Magic Mike's Last Dance. <laughs> hey, Magic Mike was great. It was a great B-movie. Yeah, the first one was. The second one was not because they started playing towards the audience that the first film wasn't designed for. And this looks like it's more playing towards that audience. Epic Tales also lands just in time for half term. Titanic gets a reissue for this 25th anniversary because, you know... It's currently third place in the all-time box office, <laughs> uh, but it's at risk of losing that with Avatar hot on its heels. 
So James Cameron wants to stop James Cameron from taking third place. I've got that sinking feeling. Hey, I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> and Women Talking, uh, Oscar-nominated film, also gets a limited release across the UK. Now TV and Sky this week sees Railway Children return. Rock Dog 3. I didn't even realise there was a Rock Dog 2. I didn't two know there was a 1 and 2. Well, they kept that a secret. Perhaps there isn't. Perhaps that's the clever bit of marketing. They're just jumping there straight isn't. in. <laughs> it's like that Bill Cosby movie, uh, Leonard Part 6. That was never <laughs> 1 to 5. Paradise City also lands on Now TV and Sky. Netflix sees Your Place or Mine, a film that sees two best friends played by Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher swapping houses and lives for a week. Amazon, Clarkson's Farm, season two. It's probably going to be the last we see of Jeremy Clarkson on Amazon, given That's recent controversy. That's not a bad thing. But I'm not going to miss out on this because you'll remember that season one was one of my neat things last year. Somebody I used to know, Alison Brie and Jay Ellis. I didn't used to know Alison Brie. I, just like to oh, I was going to say, you never introduced me. <laughs> Alison Brie and Jay Ellis in a romantic drama about the one who got away. And if you missed it at the box office, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, lands on Amazon this week as well. Well, that's just about it for this week. But before we go, yes, it's time for our neat things. Stuff that we have enjoyed, loved, that we want to tell you all about. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? I'm torn this week because I've got a list now of seven different things for neat things. And it's just getting bigger and bigger each week. But I'm going to put everyone onto this one this week because it's currently running on Apple TV. It's a new sitcom from Bill Lawrence, the creator of Scrubs and our beloved Ted Lasso. And it's called Shrinked. And it stars Jason Segal, who's co-written it as a psychiatrist who basically decides one day to start telling his patients exactly what he thinks. To sometimes successful, sometimes not so successful effect. The guy's going through a midlife crisis. He's also mourning the recent passing of his wife and he's becoming strange with his daughter. So he's focusing, as Bill Lawrence does so well, on someone's tragic life in their professional environment and how it impacts on it. And it's got everything that you love from Bill Lawrence's style of writing. It's got heart to it. It's got some really great humour and it's got a great cast. Jason Segel is fantastic in the lead role, but he's supported by the great Harrison Ford playing one of his co-workers at the clinic, who's a very grumpy, but somewhere within there is a bit of a heart. We're talking a Kelso. Just like Harrison Ford, from what I'm led to believe. We're talking a Kelso kind of character, grumpy on the exterior to colleagues, but everyone knows that there's a little bit of a gem of a heart and care in there. It's great. Uh, it's three episodes in at the moment on Apple TV+, and it's another example of why I will always circulate around any new projects coming from Apple TV, because it's just got that sheen of quality. I want this to get more seasons. I want it to go the Ted Lasso route route because i'm already as heavily involved in it as i was with those first three episodes of ted lasso that shrinked on apple tv plus check it out my neat thing is going to be very brief this week and it, it's something that that brought a tear didn't make me cry but it, it it brought a tear hit me hard and it's one scene and it's the strawberry scene out of this week's episode of the last of us so we're going to talk about the last of us uh, in a couple of weeks and review where we're up to about about the halfway mark. But it was that one scene that broke me. I don't know why. It hit me like a truck. Um, So if you've not been watching The Last of Us, why not? But this episode was kind of a, a, a bottle episode. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. So a bottle episode is a self-contained episode, mm -hmm. which usually doesn't affect the rest of the series. This does 
this gives us an insight into the world that that Joel had, uh, and it basically leads us into a story of love and grief, which reflects on it's going to reflect on the rest of the series uh, and Joel's relationship with Ellie, because without this episode, you wouldn't have them connecting. But there is one scene in it. So you, you're probably aware it's, it's about a character called Bill, who is a survivalist, uh, who likes being alone, played by the great Nick Offerman. And he meets uh, a guy called Frank, and the two become lovers. You've probably seen all the plaudits for it. If you've seen negative reviews, it's by people who are don't buy into the idea that, that two people can love each other of the same gender. It absolutely moved me, but it was this the one scene, which I'm sure you can check out, and it's the strawberry scene, and it's Nick Offerman's giggle uh, eating a strawberry. And I'm just going to say that because um, I can feel myself welling up. It was a beautiful, beautiful piece of television, but uh, this this one scene just, just broke me. And that's it. We're done for this week, folks. We'll be back again next week with another film file. Andy, take care of yourself this week, sir. And you, sir. And Andy, you could be happy here. I could take care of you. I wouldn't let anybody hurt you. We could grow up together. It's the film file. The film show for film geeks. By film. <laughs> by film? Yeah. Just by film. By film geeks. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like going and slapping Will Smith at this point in time. <laughs> don't. Don't. <laughs> yes, Stephen, we are only weeks away from your deep dive. Uh, <laughs> It's become a really good running joke it's, that way. It's only been it's only been two years, Stephen. It's only been two years. Trailer. Ouch. <laughs> eaty, it, eaty, eaty. That's too far too good. <laughs> people just don't people just don't start that again. Phrase people it. just don't. People just don't. They just don't. They don't. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs>